Colossians chapter 2. It looks like Carl's continuing his series on Colossians. From verse 6 to 23. How to keep going is his message. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with kindness, thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human traditions and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head, over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from which the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? These rules do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom and with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence.
How about we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to study your word this morning and to think about uh, what it is that you've said to us and uh, what it is uh, that you want us to know and to understand, to believe and to do, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would set before us a great vision of your Son and that you would enable us to love him and to serve him and to believe in him uh, and to follow him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I just have to ask, did I hold up the cup and say, this is my body? Did I say that? Okay. No, I didn't? Okay, just checking. I was like, did I, think, did I get that right? But I did, so that's all good. Well, as, uh, as Chris said before, we're continuing our series on Colossians. For those who are visiting uh, with us, we've been doing a series through the book of Colossians and this is our fourth week uh, going through. We've seen uh, Paul and Timothy's model of prayer. Uh, we've seen the supremacy of Christ, his supremacy over all creation, his supremacy over the church. We saw last week Paul's model of ministry, what it, what it looks like to do ministry and, and how we should follow him uh, in doing that. And this week we're looking at this section in which Paul really focuses in on how to continue in the Christian life. Last week was sort of, you know, how do we minister to people seeking to continue in the Christian life? And this week is sort of about, well, how do I continue? How do we continue in the Christian life? It would be fair to say, I think, that most of us want to grow, right? We want to grow as Christians. We're, We're not content with the status quo. Some of us maybe are. But most of us, I think, at some level, want to leave sin behind. We we want to be done with sin. We want to grow in godliness. We want to grow in holiness. We want to grow in, in being like Christ. But the problem, I think, is that we have this tendency to always look for that in the wrong in the wrong place. We want to grow, but we well, we seek the wrong means of growth. And in this section, Paul shows us both how we do that, how we look in the wrong place and also where we should look. The thrust of the passage is summarised pretty well uh, in the first few verses, in verse 6 to 8. Paul writes, So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So there are, if you like, two basic ideas. The first is continue in Christ, persevere in the faith in Christ, keep going in Christ. And the second and opposite kind of idea is don't be taken captive by human wisdom and by human traditions. And those two ideas are worked out in the rest of what Paul has to say in the chapter. So the first idea then is continue in Christ and he works that out in verses 9 to 15. So he says continue in Christ. Why? Verse 9, because in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness. You have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. 
So in Christ the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form uh, and in some sense we've also been given fullness in Christ as well. But what does that mean? What does it mean that we have fullness in Christ? What does that mean for every day of the week? What does that look like? Paul goes on to unpack the idea of fullness in verses 11 to 15. So he says, In him you are also circumcised in putting off the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So in other words, fullness in Christ is somehow bound up with the symbolism of circumcision and baptism. Somehow those two things picture fullness in Christ. Now that might not be helping much, uh, I'm not sure, whether you you all of a sudden go, aha, I understand fullness in Christ. Uh, But it just so happens that uh, for the last two and a half years I've been reading and writing about circumcision one day of the week Um, and so you're in luck Uh, (laughs) because I've been been pursuing a postgraduate study on circumcision and um, so this is dangerous, right? My supervisor said when you're studying and doing ministry you have to be so careful that every sermon doesn't become about your thesis topic. So... I may lose perspective over the next few minutes. And if I do, hang on there, we'll get there in the end, all right? But uh, I think it would be helpful to to get an idea of what Paul is saying here, to do a little bit of background theology on circumcision in the Old Testament and and baptism. What do they mean? How do they work in terms of the symbolism? Uh, For those who don't know and maybe who are a little freaked out, Circumcision was something in the Old Testament that God gave as a sign to the people of Israel. Uh, And what it sounds like Paul is saying here is that the meaning of the sign was bound up with the cutting off of the sinful nature. Uh, So we're all born corrupt uh, and sinful because of Adam and Eve's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden and that sinful nature needs to be cut away. Our sinfulness needs to be cut away. So just as flesh is cut away in circumcision, so too we need to have our sinful flesh cut away, our sinful natures cut away. And certainly Paul is leveraging that kind of metaphorical, pictorial language there. Uh, it's a bit awkward, but that seems to be what Paul is, is, is getting at. But despite the kind of the convenience of the metaphor at that level, actually in the Old Testament, in the Bible in general, circumcision functions a little bit more complicatedly. The, the, the symbolism is maybe less direct than Paul, how Paul is using it here. If you've got your Bible uh, with you, turn to Genesis 17. Which is where... God says that this is going to be the sign of of his promise, his covenant with Abraham and with his people. And in in chapter 17 verse 1 it says when Abraham was 99 years old the Lord appeared to him and said I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless. 
and I will confirm my covenant between you and will greatly increase your numbers. So God says to Abraham, he gives him this command. Later on in the chapter he gives him the sign of circumcision but he begins by saying, this is the command, walk before me and be blameless. Blamelessness is a huge demand, right? It's a, blameless is the, God refers to himself sometimes as blameless. It's kind of a similar word to, to holy. Uh, God was working through Abraham to restore the world to what it was before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned. And God was saying that the, kind of the necessary step in that happening, in people being able to uh, live with God again, the necessary first step for that to happen is blamelessness and holiness. To live permanently in the presence of God requires blamelessness. Now that's a, an impossible demand, isn't it? I mean, none of us are blameless. We're all, we all fall into sin. We're all corrupted by sin. But blamelessness was a significant word in the Old Testament for another reason and that's because all through the sacrificial system that word keeps cropping up. Every day the people would offer sacrifices for sins and every day the sacrifice that needed to be offered was a blameless sacrifice or an an unblemished sacrifice. So every day in the sacrificial system there was, if you like, a lived out commentary on what God was calling Abraham to do. He's saying, in order to live in the presence of God you need to be blameless. But you're not. And to overcome that, there needs then to be this blameless sacrifice for sins to reconcile you to God in order uh, to be restored to the presence of God. In other words, in the Old Testament, the sign of circumcision held before the people those two things of both demand and provision. The demand of blamelessness and God's provision of a blameless sacrifice. And those two ideas of demand and provision were held together in the promise, together with the promise of a descendant of Abraham in whom those things would be brought together. The promise of the sign of circumcision was intended to remind people that from Abraham would come a descendant, a single descendant, through whom God would both bring about the reality of that demand and the reality of that promised blameless sacrifice. So circumcision was the mark, if you like, of a community gathered around the promise of a descendant of Abraham who would be both blameless and a blameless substitute to bring about all that God had promised to Abraham and to the world. And the same general symbolism is present then in baptism as well. Paul says we've put off the sinful nature having been buried with him in baptism. How does that work? Well, this is maybe a little controversial uh, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Uh, It's not so much I don't think that baptism uh, symbolises a burial and a resurrection I know that some people hold that view and and some people here hold that view but I'm not sure that that's how the symbolism works. Uh, It's not, I don't think, a mountain that we need to die on but but let me explain how I think uh, the symbolism works. Baptism is is chiefly about washing and about cleansing uh, and the ideas that underpin it 
again, like circumcision, flow from the Old Testament. Uh, The writer of Hebrews describes the Old Testament washing rituals as baptisms. So you might remember, uh, for those who were here uh, a year or so ago, we looked at all the washing and cleansing rituals in Leviticus. Do do you remember? Who remember those? Uh, And the writer of Hebrews calls those, he calls those baptisms and washings. And he says, moreover, that that not only are they Old Testament realities, but they're emblematic, they're symbols which represent new covenant realities, even though they've passed away, they're representative of what God has done in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. But most importantly, I think, is if you remember from Leviticus, all those washing rituals were tied to a sacrifice. So the best example comes from Numbers 19 where uh, there was a red heifer, an unblemished red heifer, who was, uh, which was sacrificed and then the ashes of the red heifer would be uh, mixed with water and, and kept in a jar. And anybody who came in contact with, with a dead body would have to go to that water and they would take the water and they'd cleanse themselves with that water. And, and what that person was doing was a, kind of symbolising, if you like, that they needed to be cleansed from the stench of death but they were also identifying with the sacrifice that had already taken place uh, on their behalf. In other words, uh, the, the person was identifying through the washing with that death uh, that had taken place. Uh, in the same way, baptism, if you like, identifies with a death that has taken place. It's not about, like in the Old Testament, it's not about the symbolism doesn't work on the level of death and resurrection or burial and resurrection, but it works uh, on the level of washing and washing identified with a sacrifice which has already taken place. Uh, in baptism, we identify of the death of Jesus which has already taken place on our behalf, a death which makes true cleansing possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the writer of Hebrews points out that all those washing rituals in the Old Testament didn't achieve anything. They just washed the skin and the same is true of baptism. But in baptism we identify with a cleansing that can change us and transform us, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit to make us new. Baptism is the means by which, if you like, we appeal to God to apply to us the benefits of Christ's death on our behalf. And the main benefits are the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death and the cleansing or resurrection to new life through the Holy Spirit. So uh, incidentally as well in 1 Peter 3 the flood is linked to baptism not because the flood represented again death and resurrection but because the flood represented the cleansing of the earth. The earth was cleansed by the destruction of everything that was evil. And God's people came through that destruction unharmed to inhabit God's new world. So I think that's how all those concepts are tied together in the symbolism of those two signs. Circumcision in the Old Testament identified with a death on our behalf but it looked forward to a death yet to happen, right? to a death that was only promised. And baptism looks back to a death which has already taken place. 
And so Paul says, you were circumcised, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision of Christ. That is the one which was fulfilled in Christ. We were dead in blamefulness, corrupt and guilty, but God has cancelled the written code which stood against us and nailed it to the cross. That then is the fullness which we have in Jesus Christ. It is having died with Christ and been raised with Christ to share in his powerful resurrection life. So if you like, there's the theology. I hope you made it through, but what's the point? How does that help us to continue in the Christian life? Paul says, continue in Christ. Continue in the fullness of Christ. How does that help us to continue? Well, first of all, we should continue in Christ because every accusation that stood against us has been nailed to the cross. Every sin which condemned us has been put away. Everything which separated us from God has been destroyed. God has disarmed the rulers and authorities, not not the local council and the state government, but the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. He's disarmed Satan who who stands to accuse us against God. Jesus has made a public spectacle of them. He's embarrassed them. How does that help us to continue in the Christian life? It helps us because if we believe Satan's lies and accusations, we become ineffective and distracted. If we believe the accusations of Satan rather than believe the gospel, we become ineffective and distracted. So you might uh, struggle with some particular sin more than another. You might, perhaps your great struggle is to not get angry with your children, unnecessarily uh, angry, over the top kind of angry. And every day you might wake up and you say, Lord, please help me not to get angry today. Please help me not to be overly angry today. And every day you get angry and you fail and every day you seem to end up needing to apologise to your children and to repent before God for failing again. And then Satan comes to you and he says, how can you be a godly parent? How can you think that you can raise up children to be godly children when every day you're such a horrible failure? And if you believe that, you'll become ineffective and distracted in the Christian life. What we need to do is to believe the gospel and we need to say, yes, I may be a failure, but every accusation, Satan, that you can make against me has been nailed to the cross and subjected to public disgrace. You've got nothing on me. You're a fool. It's been taken care of. Or Satan might come to you with the suggestion, you can't possibly be a Christian, you're such a horrible failure, you're such a, you're such a, a, a nightmare. You know, look at how much you fail. Look at what you've done in the past. Do you remember that thing that happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago, two years ago? If we believe Satan's accusations and lies, will become distracted and ineffective and we may even give up on the gospel altogether. 
We need to apply, we need to apply the gospel to Satan's lies and we need to remind ourselves that every accusation which God has brought against us has been nailed to the cross. Every moment of every day we need to continue in Christ by looking back to the cross to disarm the accusations of Satan. And the second way that we should continue in the Christian life is by remembering that we've been raised to new life. All the resources that we need to continue in the Christian life can be found in Jesus. The logic of Paul's argument is, in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwelt bodily and and through Christ uh, we have fullness too. The the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us and to, to fill us. The power of God surges through us now. We are new people and new creations. As you face temptation, what is it that you need the most? The thing that you need the most is to be united with Christ more. One of the great dangers, uh, I think, in the Christian life is to think that the path to holiness is feeling guilty. Ever come across that? I find it so pervasive that people think that the way to grow in the Christian life is to make themselves feel terribly guilty when they sin. So they fall into sin and they think, oh, I'm a terrible person. And they think to kind of you know, lay that at the feet of the cross and to move on and to trust in Christ is somehow ungodly. But the road to holiness is not by feeling guilty and grinding ourselves into the dust. The way to continue in the Christian life is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Learn about him in the Bible. Ask the Father you denied us with him and pray that the Father would fill us with his precious Son through the Holy Spirit. Every moment of every day we need to continue in the Christian life seeking the powerful resurrection life of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. So if you like, that's how we continue. How do we continue? We continue by looking back to the cross and by seeking the life of Christ to be at work in us in the present. But Paul also warns about the dangers of distraction. In verse 8 he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Paul addresses uh, that danger then in verses 16 to 23 and and, and that danger works itself out in two ways. So the first is in verses 16 to 19. He says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. What Paul is saying is, don't look for your spiritual growth in great spiritual experiences. 
Don't look for it in religious festivals and celebrations or special days of the week. Don't look for it in the worship of angels. Uh, Don't look for it in uh, spiritual experiences like visions. Don't look for it in great experiences. Look for it in Christ. It's amazing how eagerly people look to all kinds of things to make their spiritual lives more meaningful uh, and more effective. Uh, Candles, robes, processions. The Roman Catholic Church uh, is built on the idea that spiritual drama and spiritual experience is the pathway to spiritual maturity. Many uh, churches too, other churches too, are transfixed by the pursuit of great spiritual experiences in the belief that greater experience results in greater maturity. It might be visions or speaking in tongues or miraculous healings. It's not that God doesn't do spectacular things anymore. God still reveals himself to people in dreams, it seems, particularly on the mission field. God still heals people. But great experiences of God's miraculous power are not the pathway to great spiritual maturity. We may not feel uh, drawn to those kinds of spiritual experiences. Uh, you know, you might not be knocking on my door next week saying, Carl, a few more candles and a robe, you know, would really help me grow. But I think there are evangelical dangers as well where we pursue spiritual experience. We desire to be moved in a church service, don't we? You know, that's our great measure of whether the church service has helped us to grow, whether I came away feeling moved, whether that song stirred me, whether the growth group was encouraging, whether I felt encouraged. It's not that we should avoid joy and excitement and encouragement. That's not the point. Those things are gifts from God and we should receive them as that. But when we set our store and our hope for growth on those things and think, I wasn't encouraged, I can't have grown, that's the mistake. I always, I always use this illustration. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> but, you know, how many lessons at school did you ever go... Wow, that was exciting. And how many people can do maths? Yeah? You learned it at school, didn't you? You were never moved, never stirred, never encouraged, and yet you can learn and grow. And it's the same in church, it's the same in life. We shouldn't fall into the, into the error of thinking that it's great spiritual experience which makes for great maturity. Now, where do we find great maturity? It's in being transfixed by the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. He has lost, this person who's lost his way has lost connection with the head, that is Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. We continue in the faith not by spiritual experience 
but by trusting and immersing ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the first error. Don't be, don't be caught up in that error. The second error Paul goes on to describe in verses 20 to 23. He says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul says, don't look for your growth in spiritual experience and now he says, don't look for your growth in all kinds of harsh rules which have the appearance of wisdom. It's amazing in the history of the church, uh, and not just in history, how readily people look to kind of self-flagellation to find growth. Uh, some people lived as far away from everybody else as they possibly could. could. They became hermits and they lived in caves because they thought that that would help them to become mature. There was uh, one early monk I read about the other day by the name of Anthony. He retreated from society and he lived under strict discipline in order to defeat temptation. So he moved away from everyone and he, and he imposed all these rules on his life in order to grow spiritually. And when temptation was harder, he would impose even more draconian uh, rules on himself. He would eat uh, only one meal a day or he would totally abstain from eating altogether because he thought that by being, being hard on himself he would grow in spirituality. Some people wore camel's hair undergarments, the height of uncomfortability and the idea was that the discomfort of that would somehow create spiritual growth. Some people in the Corinthian church in Paul's day thought that avoiding sex in their marriage was the way to greater holiness. It's also the basic ploy of the Amish and the Mennonite communities. Uh, they avoid technology because they believe that technology is the root of evil and that somehow living in a 17th century lifestyle is the key to spiritual maturity. Now again, we might not be tempted to, you know, run off into the mountains and live in a cave and we may not be tempted to uh, dress as though we still lived in the 17th century and yet that same spirit of harsh rules and denial can still run in our Christian lives. So you might keep falling into sin and the way that you deal with that instead of returning to the truths of the Christian gospel is that you punish yourself. No more chocolate until I conquer this sin. Some people might even go so far to actually punish themselves, to inflict themselves with pain, discomfort in order to find spiritual maturity. 
You might try to impose rules not just on yourself but on other people as well. So alcohol may be a problem for you and you decide wisely to steer clear of that, to avoid it, to not put yourself in temptation's way. But then all of a sudden nobody can have alcohol. It's the tool of the devil. It's the source of all great evils in the world. Or you might be plagued by the insidious evil which is internet pornography and so you avoid the internet. Well, that's a wise thing to do. But then all of a sudden the internet is the great evil in the world and no one in the church anywhere should be using the internet for anything whatsoever. Or you might be suffering under the idolatry of uh, relationships portrayed in film and television. They might be sucking the life out of your own marriage and so you decide that nobody should watch television or see any films because they are the root of all evil. No, don't be ridiculous. The root of all evil is you and me and every person in the world. And the key to spiritual maturity is not to make up all kinds of harsh and ridiculous rules. It is to flee to the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is not saying, don't bother fighting for for holiness. He's not saying that. He's not saying, don't bother setting up boundaries. He's not saying that either. Boundaries are useful. Fighting for holiness is important. We'll see that next week. But what he is saying is, don't have anything to do with those severe restrictions. Don't try and grow by flogging yourself and beating yourself into the ground and imposing all kinds of ridiculous rules. Rules which seem wise but aren't. You see, the trouble with both of these errors, with the error of religious experience and harsh rules, the trouble with both of them is that they have this appearance of wisdom. You look at them and you go, yes, I can see that a great spiritual experience would help me grow. Yes, I could see, I could see that that would be possible. I could see, yes, that if, if we did all avoid television and film, yes, there would be reason for growth. They appear wise, don't they? They appear so sensible. But Paul says they're just human ideas which fail to deal with the root of evil which is in our hearts. No, the way to continue in the Christian life is not by experiences or more rules The way to continue is by more Christ. It's knowing more fully what Jesus has done. It's believing that more completely. It's rejoicing and overflowing with thankfulness for Jesus more and more. It's by Christ being formed in us more and more through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's so unspectacular, isn't it? You know? It would be kind of easier if it was visions and rules and not just the simplicity of believing and loving and rejoicing and trusting in Jesus Christ. But this is God's word to us. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let me pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we can all see that our lives are marred by sin and riddled with sin. And Lord, we want to persevere. We want to keep going. We want to make it to the end. We want to grow in maturity and in the knowledge of Christ. And yet, Lord, we want to confess too that so often we get distracted by things that just don't make a difference. Lord, they seem so wise and so well thought out, so clever, so moving. And yet, Lord, at the end of the day, we're left being the same old miserable people day after day after day. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us for that and help us to believe you and to listen to you when you say that the source of great gospel hope and great gospel growth is being transfixed by the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to love him and to believe in him and to rest in him. Lord, thank you that in him every sin that we've ever committed and every shame which haunts us has been nailed to the cross and hurled into the depths of the sea. Lord, thank you that all the resources that we need to keep going in our Christian lives are found in him. Thank you that his life, his resurrection power pulsates through us now, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Lord, forgive us and empower us to grow in maturity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.